Do you want to make a podcast? Spotify's got a platform that lets you make one super easily. It's called Spotify for Podcasters. It lets you record and edit podcasts right from your phone or computer. So no matter what your setup is like, you can start creating today. Then you can distribute your podcast to Spotify and everywhere else podcasts are heard. Video podcasts are also available on Spotify. You know I love that, and I promise you the other platforms don't offer that. With Spotify for Podcasters, you can also earn money in a variety of ways, including ads and podcast subscriptions. And best of all, it's totally free with no catch. I've been using Spotify for Podcasters from the very start. I highly recommend you give it a try. Just don't post on Monday. Download the Spotify for Podcasters app or go to www.spotify.com slash podcasters to get started. Hi, everyone. Welcome to Monday Match Analysis. I'm Gil Gross. Today's episode is a conversation with Amy Lundy. Her work has been featured on ESPN.com and 538.com. I continue to reach out to members of the tennis media um, and ask them, what's a match that you are interested in going back and reliving and talking about? So I did the same here. And uh, Amy chose the 2009 U.S. Open semifinal between Serena Williams and Kim Clijsters. Uh, it was a good choice. I had a lot of fun going back and watching this match. Before we get into it, there will also be brief discussion on how Amy compiles data in her in her journalism and her, her work on tennis, especially for 538.com, and also what needs to happen before tennis can come back amidst the coronavirus pandemic. Without further ado, Amy Lundy. We're joined for the first time by freelance tennis journalist Amy Lundy. Her work has been featured on 538.com, ESPN.com, CNN. Amy, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you. Glad to be with you. So uh, first of all, how are you doing? How's the, uh, the quarantine and all that? The two of us are firmly within the hot spot uh, of the United States. Well, outside of Manhattan. But other than that, our, our areas aren't looking too great. Yeah, we even, we were on the front page of the New York Times here in Westport, Connecticut, where I live, um, for being a hot spot because we had an international visitor and there was a party and it, it was kind of a mess. But I have to say here in Westport, we really have flattened the curve. I mean, we've taken it very seriously for the past month. Um, so everybody's healthy. Everybody's doing well. Um, my friends and family are doing well. So Good. I'm hoping things will open up soon. Yeah, I, I follow you on Twitter and you seem to be following uh, news that, that pertains to the virus very closely. So relating <laughs> that to tennis, what do you think needs to happen before we can get some tennis again? I'm so glad you asked about that. Yeah, I write a lot about data for 538, and I could not help but be drawn to um, the data surrounding the pandemic, the search for a vaccine, which is like this really intense arms race, the um, curves, you know, the epidemiology of it all. And I try on my Twitter feed, if anyone wants to follow me, I try to curate very carefully. Like there's a lot of noise out there and try to find just the right data viz or whatever to share. Um, I think that there will be a way to uh, play the sport again, maybe even before the year's out. But we need a lot of strong leadership at the top, and we're going to need a lot of cooperation between the people that run the slams, the two tours, the ITF, 
And I think it's going to involve a lot of testing, um, both, you know, the, the testing that is, do you have uh, COVID-19, the rapid testing, and also the antibody testing, have you made antibodies to this? And then right. there's going to be a good bit of immunity out there, especially in the New York area, as you know, Gil. So there's going to be a lot of people that have already been exposed to this. And I think there will be a way to play tennis, but people are going to have to be flexible. We may have to um, cut the draws. You know, we may have to um, only allow people both playing the tournament and um, and in the stands and media and tournament officials that either are testing negative on the spot or have uh, not been have been exposed to the virus and have antibodies. But there would be a way to do it if if we really you know, got right. it together. It's just, do we have strong central leadership in this sport? It's pretty splintered. Yes, you know? it, it is pretty splintered. And that is on full display right now as the French Open unilaterally moves their dates and all that. But we won't get into that. Um, I, I first was, was introduced to your work through 538. Uh, you know, I've, your piece on, on Rafa Nadal and, and how, what he does on clay and earlier this year, Novak Djokovic and how he's hitting his second serve bigger. And uh, I love it because I, I'm someone who looks at tactics and things players are doing. And I, and I come on here on this YouTube channel and say, they're doing this. And I just need people to believe me. And then you come out with solid data that actually shows what they're doing. For example, one that sticks in my head is you found that at the French Open, Rafa Nadal hits the majority of his forehand winners from the backhand side of the court. My question is, how do you compile and, and what's the process of, of getting data like that? It's um, good old-fashioned reporting, really. Um, you, you actually have to go to the event. Um, we're kind of in the dark ages with the way that data is distributed in tennis. You can't just find it on the internet. There's a lot of data and information at the actual Grand Slam that you can find through the data provider. Sometimes you find it through coaches that are gathering their own data. And you just start talking to people and you start looking at numbers. And sometimes I've been at these slams and I think there's nothing that is sticking out to me and I'm so frustrated, I can't find it, I can't find it. And then it just, pops out out of nowhere. It's like, there it is. There's my story. Um, but it, it really does involve a lot of um, talking to people. And, um, and then you have to take it and make it not too technical and give it some panache so that the more casual fan would really enjoy reading about this particular trend. So thank you for saying that. But it really is good old-fashioned journalism. And, um, you know, the other thing that I was talking to you about earlier before we went on the air is that just because someone says that they have a metric doesn't mean that that's meaningful. So there is an art to the interpretation of data. Yeah, couldn't, couldn't agree with you more there. So what I'm doing here um, as a whole is I'm going to journalists who, who I love like you and asking them, give me a match that sticks out. What What's a match that you would enjoy going back to reliving? And uh, you chose Serena Williams versus Kim Kleister's U.S. Open 2009 semifinal. Why was that a match that, that you wanted to go back to? 
Well, I remember, of course, it's famous for the footfall that was called on Serena, which ended up basically repeating itself almost 10 years later um, with this big, huge controversy that would really change the sport. But um, so I wanted to go back and look at everything that happened and look at the context from a decade prior. But I also remember it just being a great match. And I think that's kind of lost in what the retelling of that incident. And also, I think it's just so cool that Serena Williams and Kim Kleisters were playing. And Kim at that time was coming back from a maternity leave two years away from the sport to have a child. And now Serena is basically doing the same, trying to pick up another slam. And now Kim is coming back again, and she's had two more children. So it's like mom versus mom and two um, players that are actually quite similar in many ways. And it doesn't surprise me at all that they're friends. But um, just all that sort of background on the match I thought would be very interesting. Yeah, there's some some crazy parallels here with how how Kim came back from that from that maternal leave but it was a it was a great match quality wise Serena I don't know if she would fully agree but but she lost the match so her opinion wouldn't count here um in the fact that Kleisters and Serena are similar I think that goes beyond the the storyline and and even on the court the rare combination of speed and power. And I don't know if anyone outside the Williams sisters really had it other than Kim Kleisters to the level that the Williams sisters have it. You nailed it, Gil. I mean, they are, they're both 5'9". And if you look at their bodies at that time, um, they're so similar. They're, they're both almost at the peak of their fitness. And they both have these super powerful legs with just the perfect amount of quad development, not over development of the quads, but solid. And they both get a ton of power from their legs. Uh, they're all court players. They, you know, they both have the ability to finish at the net. Um, they both have amazing serves. Um, you know, everyone says that Serena has the best serve ever, and that's probably true. Kleister's serve may be a little bit underrated, but the motion, the service motion is so similar. They both have that wrist break that, you know, not everybody has. And, uh, it's amazing. It's like you're watching, and they both had, even in that match, their hair was done in a very similar way. It was in this, like, low bun, and uh, that, I think that that parody made for an amazing match. Sometimes I actually question if women's tennis, and I think same for the men's side. Uh, on the men's side, I don't think the level that, of tennis that we were getting in 2011, I don't think it exists at the present moment. And sometimes I wonder the same thing for the women's side. When I'm, watching, when I'm watching this match in 2009, I don't know if anyone can really put together that level right now. What do you think? Boy, that's a really good point. Um, I have my opinions on where tennis, both men's and women's, is right now in terms of game, the style of the game. And I do not like it all too much of a baseline game. And I think the, men, the men's game now is just starting to venture away from the baseline um, after having this long period of nobody coming into the net. Um, 
and I think the women are just a hair behind them and you know many of the best players in the world are really just standard baseliners right now in the women's game so I think once they kind of bust out of that trend and try to one up each other like okay the way that I win the way that I beat a baseliner now is to come in more and by the way the statistics show that that is the best way to do it um, I, I think that will will uh, make the the women's game eminently more watchable and more entertaining and more like it was in 2009 but you're right you know right now we've got like the Hallops and the um, Madison Keys and it, it's just a very grind baseline type situation yeah Ash Barty is is a little bit of a a curveball from that but at the same time she doesn't have nearly some of the fundamentals off the ground that Serena and Kleisters brought so let's yeah right yeah oh I love Ash uh, you know the the thing about Ash is her slice that that's what sort of differentiates she can use that thing to pin opponents anywhere but she does have a little bit more of a varied game so I'm glad to see her rising let's set up this match so 2009 U.S. Open semifinals Kleisters comes in unseated, actually unranked, which is pretty rare in tennis. And the reason she was unranked is because it's a three tournament minimum in the ranking system. And this was only her third tournament back from the, from the maternity leave. Uh, there was an eight hour rain delay. Kleisters had just taken out uh, Venus Williams and uh, Serena led the head to head seven one. They hadn't met since 2003 in 99, they, um, when Serena first won the U.S. Open, these two met as teenagers, and Serena got the better of that one and went on to win the title. Um, I just threw out a bunch of information, rapid fire. I don't know if that was very smart. But all things considered, Serena's a massive favorite in this match. Oh, yeah. Um, and it's so funny watching the, the telecast, and everyone should watch this just for the gems that are – cast about in this telecast you've got mary carrillo on one side you've got dick emberg in the middle and you've got john McEnroe on the other side and it's like dick is sort of um <laughs> the middle of the tension and and i don't know what their relationship is like now but that they had a couple of they have a history of a couple of things that were said that set up some tension and so um at some point during the match, John McEnroe says something like, I think I wrote it down. It says, maybe I should have a baby and improve my speed. Or at, at another point, he says um, something like, maybe everybody should should take a couple of years off and have a baby. Right, Mary? And and her, she just said nothing. It was just like, and, and there, there was like a glare inside the booth, I think they said. Yeah. Um, so there's this great tension during the match over this issue of taking time off and having a baby and all that. So I think that um, really weaves its way through the competition because you're watching Kim Kleisters um, finding her range and finding her footing. And it's really kind of a beautiful thing to see. I, I laughed very hard uh, watching the broadcast <laughs> after that moment. I mean, it was, uh, you're right. I mean, Mary Carrillo didn't say anything. And then Dick Enberg said something like, well, you know, uh, facial expressions can say a lot. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, I think Mary just shot bullets through John after he said that. Um, 
But uh, I do I do like to actually start with the production of this match before we get into the first set. Um, one thing that was highlighted was uh, the Williamses had had just bought partial ownership of the Dolphins and Venus was in the player's box wearing a Miami Dolphins cap. I haven't seen that resurfaced at all. No one really talks about that anymore. That's one of the things I meant to Google before we went on and see if they still were. But they said it was one of those sort of um, celebrity minority, very, very minority stakes. But yeah, I, I haven't seen anything about that. And I'm wondering, have the Dolphins even changed hands ownership since then? They may have. I'm not, I'm not sure. And uh, I did look it up and it didn't say anything about them selling that stake or, or anything like that. But I did think that was funny because people probably thought it was like a big thing at the time. And, and I haven't heard anything about it since. Um, all right. So first set, the first break of serve is at two, three and Serena in the beginning, she's not finding her backhand. There's a lot of errors flying off of Serena's racket. Yeah, um, and she was blaming her racket or the stringing of her racket. Um, and, you know, we've seen her do this before. But the, the bottom line, Gil, is that if you're missing shots long by a few inches, that means you're going for the lines. You are not um, giving yourself a much, enough margin. Um, and so, you know, she came out and she was – going for the lines, whereas Kim had real control of her depth, whether she was hitting a defensive shot or she was flattening it out and putting it, uh, hitting something on offense, the depth was just about perfect. Um, and I think that's how she established um, herself early in the match. You nailed it. I was blown away by Kleister's depth, not only in the first set, but also in the second set. Uh, it reminded me of of Novak Djokovic and how he's able to put the ball on the baseline over and over again. And that's the best way to neutralize uh, someone with tons of power like Serena. She did break back, um, and then she served at 4-5. Uh, mm -hmm. That game went to 30-all, th uh, and again, a really great return by Kleisters, hit the baseline, and Serena couldn't handle it. It forced an error. Then at 30-40, again, another backhand, first ball, unforced error, and Serena uh, loses that first set. Kleisters wins it 6-4. So I, I think Serena had moments in the first set, but ultimately the, the steadiness wasn't there at all. Yeah, there was some point, um, I think it might have been 4-2, uh, Serena changed her racket and got a new racket. And when yep. she came back, um, she really started pounding the ball. And, you know, unlike early in the match, um, she was landing her shots. But it's interesting to me that Serena, when she, when her back is up against the wall, her response or her reaction is to pound. Yes. You know, other players, um, and maybe even you could say this about Kleisters, um, will will go a little more defensive when their back is up against the wall. And you just, Serena will, she'll up the speed on her forehand. She will um, grunt louder. You know, yep. she'll be more attacking. Whereas I noticed that when Kleisters got in these tight spots in the in the match, she would put margin on the ball. She'd put top on it. and right. um, 
you know, they say defense wins championships. I mean, I think that may have been the case here. It, it, yeah, I agree. And a good, a good example of that is at that 30-all, 4-5 Serena serving. And I think McEnroe says something like, oh, look for Kleisters to be aggressive on the second serve return. And Kleisters takes a step back and goes high margin, topspin over the net, doesn't give Serena much pace to work with. It's kind of a, a you know, okay, you, you do something kind of ball. And Serena misses the backhand into the net. On the second serve return, Kleisters was, was rarely aggressive in this match. Always the heavy topspin, safe ball, making Serena attack off the first ball. Uh, and it was really effective as Serena had very little success on her second serve. Yeah, and I remember thinking at one point, I don't think I wrote it down, but I remember thinking, like, Kim is in command in this game, um, and she's not making first serves. So um, I, I think her mentality was just a little more defensive. Um, like, I'm, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to run Serena. I'm going to make her hit another one. And it's, it's funny because Kleisters, you would never call her a counterpuncher, but she has that ability. And I think that's probably what makes her a great champion. I think she had massive success counterpunching in this match. And sometimes I was questioning Serena's choices to go down the line, because if you go down the line and it's not good when you're pulled off the court, obviously someone like, someone like Kim who is very comfortable five feet behind the baseline and going to, you know, play a, a defensive shot and hit into the open court, turn that into offense right away. Sometimes I think not all of the variables were there for Serena to go down the line. I don't think she's your model good shot selection player, but I think Serena went down the line sometimes and Kleisters burned her on the counter punching. Yeah, um, you know, the, I, I have a great story that somebody told me about both the Williams sisters, about how Richard and um, Rick Macy and, and some of the, the people that were um, crucial in the Williams sisters development, um, tactically what they were coached to do. And, you know, you, you think that they were coached to do these really complex patterns, but they were told very early on that if you don't know what else to do, just start going side to side. Just take the player and move the player side to side. So, you know, I, I think there may have been some times where um, Serena was either late and that's why she went down the line or she decided to open up the court that way first. And um, it just wasn't working out for her because eventually I think she was going for too much. And you still see that in her game today. She thinks that her power and her, um, her aggression is going to bail her out of these spots when if, you know, she could play just a little more defense, um, she'd get that that slam that she needs, I think. Yeah, we'll, we'll get into, after we're through with the match, we'll get into the future with Serena and Kleisters um, because Kleisters is also back. She played one match in, in 2020, just skipping ahead. You know, she, she comes back, she plays one match in Dubai, and then we have a global pandemic, unfortunately. Um, all right. So in the second set, lots of breaking of serve here. Mm -hmm. uh, Serena is not winning any points on her second serve. 
but she's also playing better tennis at times to break Kim's serve. Uh, what did you feel was the main trends happening in the second set? Um, I, I think, you know, a lot of, in tennis is made of the rally length. Um, there are people out there that uh, make a living off of looking at rally length. And we know from the data that short rallies rule the sport. And, you know, the question is, and, and, and there is a really interesting data point that says the person that wins the most long rallies in the match, which is like nine plus or something, mm -hmm. um, it's like more often actually loses the match. So it really the person that wins the short rallies, the vast majority of the time wins the match. So we've started to think um, in terms of strike first tennis, but the lingering question that remains is, if someone starts, if one player starts lengthening the rallies, which I think Kleister's did in this match, does it demoralize the other person and does it take away momentum? And there were a couple of rallies in the second set. I wrote down 2-1, um, 30-love. Serena won the rally, but it was a long rally. And she was extremely winded for the next few points. She went on to win that game, um, but she had to fight hard. Um, and I, I think sometimes just one rally can be a momentum changer or it can take the wind out of the person's sails and I remember looking at the the look on Serena's face and it was kind of like oh my god Kim's gonna do this to me today I don't know if I have the patience for this well I think the misconception is that consistency only matters in a long point and in short points it's it's all about aggression but if you miss the first ball well that's a matter of consistency it was still a short point but you lost because you didn't have that consistency uh, I think that Kim was a lot less likely in this match to miss on the first couple balls. And an example of that is just how she was returning Serena's second serves. Serena was under 40% second serve points won, and Kim wasn't even aggressive on her second serve return. She was taking a step back. Usually it was to the backhand, and she was looping it heavy, heavy topspin with a lot of margin over the net. Yeah, and Serena probably doesn't like that kind of ball. I mean, who does? Um, I don't know if you play, Gil, but we're, we're told often by the, the coaches in tennis um, to attack the second serve, you know, especially if um, you're playing somebody that takes a lot of pace uh, off their between the first, the differential between the first and second serve. Mm -hmm. And uh, Kim in this match, as you point out, went counterintuitive to that. Um, she, Serena obviously hits a big kick on her second serve, so Kim just stood back, waited for that thing to come down, and then just put it right back up. And it probably um, really tested Serena's patience. Yeah, I think that that probably would have been the wrong play if Serena was feeling really good about her game and was slapping winners left and right. But throughout the match, she was she was not feeling very great about herself, talking to herself a lot. That's why I think the tactic on the return from Kleisters was the correct one, and, and it paid dividends. Mm -hmm. Exactly. Um, 
see, I, I wrote down here, I, this is apropos of nothing, but I just wanted to throw this <laughs> sure. in. Um, in the second set, it was 2-2, two, two, and um, it was a stellar point that uh, in which Serena was able to break Kleisters on that one point. Billie Jean King was in the booth, and McEnroe chooses this point right before the point started on break point to ask Billie Jean about what something about what was it like to receive the Presidential Medal of Honor or something. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> in Broadcasting 101, it is the wrong time to ask that question. And it was just, it kind of made for an awkward sort of situation. And it took away from what was actually a really pivotal part of the match but um just thought i'd throw that in there <laughs> yeah uh, J john McEnroe does not adhere to any broadcasting 101 rules um so i think that that would be in line with with how he goes about things and uh, sometimes it creates magic on the air and then yeah. sometimes it's like wow that didn't work at all yeah um, and i think he would admit that let's go to five six okay so serena is serving and uh this is an important game First point of the of the game, Serena steps in and misses a backhand approach shot into the net. She gets an ace at love 15. Mm -hmm. 15 all, it's that second serve once again. Serena Williams, um, unforced error on that first ball. Again, heavy topspin loopy, not a lot of pace. That return that was giving her so much trouble. 15-30, this is the first serve. Second serve, a foot fault is called. Mm -hmm. I don't know if you want to take it from here. Yeah. Um, well, first of all, just to back it up, uh, a foot fault was called earlier mm -hmm. in this set at 3-2 deuce. Um, the, I don't know if it was the same line judge or not, but Serena got called for a foot fault. And she had no reaction, really. I mean, or she may have, you know, looked over at the line judge, but then just didn't say anything and just went about her business. Yes. Um, you know, I'm sure anyone watching this understands how rare footfall call is. Um, and so there's, there's this, this specter around that call. And when I went and, and looked back at the coverage, um, there were all these calls for, well, footfall has got to be something that Hawkeye is now, you know, checking and you can challenge it. And it never happened, Gil. We never made that change. So still to this day, footfall could ruin or, you know, throw cast doubt on, on a match. So I think we should get that fixed at some point. Um, but then, uh, so it fast forward to the end of the match. And I went back right. and I watched it a few times. And um, it was 1530, right before Serena's first serve. It was loud. I mean, and yeah, it's the New York crowd, but for some reason, I guess people realized that Kleister's was two points from the match. Yeah. Before Serena was about to serve, the chair had to quiet the crowd down, and it, it, it just, um, I wish that that hadn't happened, and I wish Serena could have made her first serve there, but she didn't. Um, and then you come to second serve, and that's when the foot fault is called. And um, the bottom line is that uh, 
the cameras angles back then were not such that there was not a good angle nothing could tell yeah i mean there's we couldn't tell that there was and we couldn't tell that there wasn't and um serena got very upset you know she uh started yelling at the uh line judge and um said i think what she said was i'm gonna shove this ball down your throat or something yep that's what i think was picked up you know it it was um so at the end of the at the end of the first it was a mess at the end of the first set serena again missed two backhands in a row unforced errors and she smashed her racket that was the first code violation of course the the rules are are that that you get one warning next time it's a point it sounds familiar doesn't it the smashing (laughs) of the racket there are so many parallels it's stunning and uh i'll also add that that there was an incident so so you're referring to the osaka incident um, which was which was similar to the 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 whole code violation progression stuff with uh, Carlos Ramos. Um, there was also the incident where she hit a passing shot and then yelled "Come on!" before Sam Stoser had hit the ball and uh, Serena lost the point because of hindrance. So this court has had lots of demons for Serena, and uh, this was you know I don't even think this was the first incident because I think I was looking at, at Wikipedia and I think there was another, but. Capriati. Yes, Capriati. And that was unfair what happened there. So it, it, it's been bad. Yeah. Yeah. So I guess uh, my net net on what happened is that the foot fault shouldn't have been called because if you're going to call a foot fault at 1530, five, six in a I don't, I don't care how big the match is actually just with that scoreline, if you're going to call a foot fault, it better be an obvious foot fault. And was it a foot fault? Maybe, but if it was, it was really close. As you said, the camera angles were not good enough that we could confirm nor deny, but what was obvious, what we can confirm is that it wasn't an obvious foot fault. I don't think it should have been called, but Serena needs to also recognize the situation and try to stay calm. It's like the very same thing that happened in the 2018 U.S. Open. It was, um, should Carlos Ramos have sort of swallowed his whistle? I mean, it's the final of a U.S. Open, and he didn't. And he, some say, you know, got overly officious. And um, should Serena have controlled her behavior? Yes, but I, you, I think the line from the 2018 U.S. Open that she said to Brian Early was, this keeps happening to me. And mm-hmm. watching this match really does set the context um, for all that. Because after this happened in 2009, she was upset in the moment. She did have to default the match because of what she said to the line judge. She lost that point and therefore lost the match. Um, but her reaction was to walk across the net, shake Kim's hand, wave to the crowd, and leave. But when the incidents start piling up and, you, and the pressure is piling up and you fast forward to the 2018 
she was in tears. It's like she just couldn't take it anymore. It was like the pounding, the pounding, the pounding over the years. So you can certainly see, you know, why um, she would be emotional. But I will say about Kleister's, um, it, Kim looked so shocked and, and upset also that, that Serena would be called for a fault. <laughs> she didn't want to win the match that way. She felt that something had been taken from her too. So it was kind of sad all the way around. And I really don't think it should have been called. Um, and, and what really kind of bothers me is that we don't, we will never know whether it was actually a foot fault or not. Yeah, that, that, that is a little bit bothersome. What did you make of um, Serena's? Did you watch the press conference afterwards? I know that the, the link that we watched had uh, Serena's, um, Serena's remarks to the press after the match. Um, no, I didn't. I had okay. read some of her quotes. I read a bunch of articles about it after the fact. She does end up apologizing. I know that. Eventually. I don't know if it was, yeah, eventually, but it wasn't. Okay. Okay. Her mindset was essentially, um, she wasn't remorseful. She also wasn't resentful. She was like, this is me. I'm fiery. It happened. Time to move on. And that was, I think, uh, where she stood there. Okay. Well, um, you know, John Wertheim is one of my favorite journalists ever, and he managed to catch up with the line judge sometime later and was able to interview the line judge, which nobody actually did, and so good get for him. But in the article, which he wrote for Sports Illustrated, he says that Serena's foot nicked the line. And as much as I like John Wertheim, I'm like, how do you know? You know, just how do you know? So it's like John kind of proclaimed. And I think over the years, um, people have associated with, they don't think about the foot fault. They think about Serena losing her temper. And maybe that's right or maybe that's wrong. But um, I do think, Gil, that it's helpful to go back and watch the entire match. I agree. I agree. Uh, so here's what ends up happening down the road. Down the road is in the next day. But Caroline Wozniacki was playing her semifinal um, against Yanina Wickmeyer on Armstrong. Wozniacki came through. Kleisters beats Wozniacki in the final. Unseeded, unranked, after a two-year layoff, a mother wins uh, the U.S. Open. I feel like there's something to be said for the freewheeling mindset that players sometimes are able to capture when there's no expectations and they're coming back from a long layoff and they have this fresh perspective. Absolutely. I mean, anyone that has ever picked up a tennis racket knows that phenomenon. Um, whether it's something in your personal life, like, you know, you've had a child or maybe you're dealing with a tragedy or, you know, maybe it's the pandemic and, and you're, not a, you're not able to play tennis for a long period of time. And then you come back to the court and it's, it's like these lowered expectations. What do I have to lose? Um, that freeness that can manifest itself in your mechanics it can clear up your mind. You can see the patterns that you're trying to play more clearly. You're more in control of your emotions. And I do think that Kim Kleisters was able to ride that wave. 
She won three or two more, two additional major titles after this uh, 2009 U.S. Open triumph. She came into the match with, with one major title, so she finished her career with four. In 2012, she retired again because she said that she didn't want to be playing tennis while her kids went to school. And now she's coming back. Kim Kleisters has had a very unique career where she seems to just kind of be doing what is what she feels is best for her personal life and her professional career, which are almost weighed equally as important for her. Imagine that, that freedom um, that so many women do not have in this country or in this world um, to be able to sort of dictate um, your terms for how you're going to work and how you're going to manage your family. And it's inspiring that she's been bold enough to do that. And it's something that um, really makes you want to pull for her. And I, I was reading a little bit, too, about the background coming into this match, and it said something like Kleisters had lost her motivation slightly for the game. And I thought, wow, you really don't see it in this match. She's played such a disciplined match and trying to make every ball regardless of the score you know um if she's down 40 love and serena's serving she's still trying to lengthen the rallies mm -hmm. and um she really caught something in this match i think you're right but just in general uh you can see why she's one of the most popular players ever yeah she's she seems like uh i've never met her never talked to her but she seems like someone who um is just a joy to be around honestly um, what are your expectations for this most recent comeback, which has to be, regardless of what happens, one of the most bizarre, bizarrely timed comebacks in history? I mean, what do you see in Kim Kleister's future? I think the sky's the limit. Um, I think they can both do it, uh, Serena and Kim. Um, Oh, having kids is tough. I mean, I've got two, you know, as my mother likes to say, once you've had a child, your mind is never your own again. Um, so they have that to contend with. But in many ways, I think it can make you stronger because you become really good at multitasking. And that can translate on the tennis court when you have to multitask your emotions, the tactics, maybe a correction to your mechanics, the other player, you know, um, I think, though, physically, they're going to both of them are going to have to put the pedal to the metal. They're going to have to push their body uh, more than they would back in their 20s. Um, and but it can be done. It can be done. Serena needs to up the quickness. Uh, she really does. It, it's not going to work just to try to hit the you know what out of the ball and hope it doesn't come back. Right. So on, on the Serena side of things, she, she won the Australian Open 2017 while eight to nine weeks pregnant. Uh, then the next major she came back to play was uh, the French Open in 2018 after, after having Olympia, her daughter. Since then, she's made four major finals, but she's lost them all. She sits at 23 career Grand Slams, which uh, is the, the record in the Open era but behind Margaret Court's overall record of 24. And uh, it's an interesting case because I just, 
it feels like now it's become mental for her in, in major finals. I think the last couple of times it has been, but also you're right. The quickness has declined and that's forced her to go for more and the consistency just hasn't been there. And that's mental too. It's all tied together. If you don't think you can reach that ball or you don't think you can hang in this match physically, then mentally you think I got to go for more. You know, I got to, I got to, rip the the cover off the ball um so i think if she and, and a, a coach that that does a uh the physical stuff on tour that coaches a bunch of players told me this if you improve your fitness it really helps the mental because you know you start thinking yeah you know i i ran this amount or I did these sprints or I did this and I was able to hold up. So I know that in, I'm, in my head, I know my body can make it through this. So that sort of frees up the brain. Um, so I think she's going to have to do that. And one of my favorite Serena quotes ever, because there are a lot of women that identify with this, she was out for an injury. Um, I think she had to withdraw from the French Open fairly recently. This was after the, having the child and coming back. And then she was out and then she came back and her first press conference coming back, everyone was like, you know, you're, you're pretty good shape right now. Having had this time away from the game, um, you look fit. And she said, the quote was, yeah, I basically had to eat grass, nothing but grass. They put me on a diet, but it worked. So I think um, it's hard to do during a pandemic, but I think that's probably what Kim and Serena are both going to have to do. They're going to have to watch what they eat and, you know, do, keep playing tennis. Um, they, I'm sure they both have access to courts and, um, and be fit and ready. And if they do that, then the, the types of players that they are, the all-court players that they are, they will have a chance to compete and, and pick up another slam or more. Do we have an official prediction on the, <laughs> on the slam counts? Oh, no, no. Um, and I, I said this before, because I do data, I don't predict. I refuse to predict. I like to present the data yep. and let other people predict. But I will say that I think both have the capacity to be totally competitive yeah i gotta i gotta see how uh how Kleisters is moving i i didn't see the one match that she played in her comeback i didn't either uh, but certainly serena still has the firepower to uh to add on that 23 and to tie margaret court without a doubt <laughs> anyway this has been great it's syracuse and georgetown coming together as well right <laughs> yeah um that's too incredible. bad you guys left the conference and ruined everything for the big east <laughs> i won't hold it against you personally gil <laughs> that's good that's good well uh, you know this look it's like it's like peace in the middle east this this yeah. is uh, this is incredible yeah. uh anyway this has been a lot of fun thank you yes. so much for coming thank on you. and um hopefully We'll do it again with yes. actual tennis that is not from 2009 that we can discuss. Yes. Be well, Gil. Thank you so Thank you. much. Stay safe. Without the ones like you who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants, they all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you with professional-grade industrial supplies. Count on real-time product availability and fast delivery. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done.
You know when you're listening to a true crime story that has an unbelievable plot twist that makes you stop in your tracks? That's what our podcast, People Are the Worst, brings you with each episode. I'm Rachel. And I'm Rebecca. We're identical twins who love true crime cases that make you say, didn't see that coming, and we hate the people responsible for them. Listen to People Are the Worst now on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts.